1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking at the government's tight votes on the Customs Union, the growing signs of big problems in the Tory party, and Labour's dilemmas over Brexit and anti-Semitism once again. I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor James Blitz, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, and our political commentator Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you enjoy this episode of FT Politics... Don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive every Saturday morning. So Theresa May's government has survived another week, but it was a close-run thing. On Monday and Tuesday, the government faced an uprising from the Brexit and Remainer wings of the Conservative Party. The Prime Minister had no choice but to accept amendments to the crucial customs bill from the Brexiter side when staving off a rebellion from the Remainers on whether the UK should ultimately remain in a customs union. By just a handful of vote, Mrs May squeaked through, so her checkers plan lives to die another day. Parliament is also pretty much finished for the summer season, so the question now is, can she get through the summer, and are things finally calming down? James Blitz, let's begin with those votes earlier in the week. So this is the Customs Bill, one of the key pieces of legislation to make Brexit a reality. And the government have delayed bringing this in front of the House of Commons because they were so worried about amendments and losing it. And in some senses, the whole Chequers Brexit plan was to stave off an amendment to the Customs Bill to keep us in the Customs Union. Tell us what happened and where the government won, but also why the government lost.
2: Well, it was certainly a dramatic week, and perhaps we might look back on it in future times as actually a decisive one. In effect, there were two points of pressure on Mrs May. One was from the Brexit ultras, the 60 to 80 conservative MPs led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who dislike the Chequers prospectus enormously. And they put forward four amendments to her customs bill to try and basically move it towards a more radically pro-Brexit position. The government gave way on that. They accepted all four amendments. We can debate at great length whether that changes the status of of the Chequers proposal. The government's view, and I think it's a generally accepted view, is it doesn't as much as Rees-Mogg might make out. But the fact is the government accepted those four amendments, and the bill got through. Then, in a kind of revenge act, the pro-Europeans, led by Stephen Hammond and Nicky Morgan, put forward an alternative amendment, and one which would have effectively defaulted to leaving the UK in a customs union. That was a dramatic moment, because if Mrs May had lost that amendment, she was clearly against that, she's always said we've got to be out of a customs union, that would have created a real government crisis. They won that by a handful of votes. So net-net, the week is one in which rees mogg and the arch-Brexiters look as though they've still got the upper hand, the whip hand on the backbenchers, and it's been another big setback for the pro-Europeans. Mrs May at the end of it is still left standing.
1: Miranda Green, somebody described Brexit to me recently as trying to take a goat up a mountain path here. And it sort of does feel like that, that it's at every moment, every turn, the goat, if that's how you want to put Brexit, could fall off and slide into the precipice. And that's really the sense that I got from this week, that ever so slowly the legislation is moving forward, the compromises are holding, but, you know, the drama is increasing, increasingly problematic for Mrs May. And you do wonder if it is going to fall at some point.
0: Well, you do. And to take on your metaphor, you have to kind of work out what is the goat? Because what is the nature of the precipice that it might fall into? Because it seems to me the great danger here is that number 10 and the negotiating team are putting all their energy into this compromise. And actually the chances of one of two extreme things happening are becoming more likely. So the precipice could be no deal. And a lot of the Remainers seem to hope that the precipice could be going back to some sort of political status quo before the referendum was even held. You can't do that. That's an impossibility. I mean, the the likeliest metaphor actually I came up with was more the kind of famous Vietnam quote, we have to destroy the village to save the village, you know. So this elaborate process that the government's been going through to have a negotiating position and then take it to Brussels, see what they come back with by the autumn, etc., All of that might fail because you've got these two extreme wings on either side thinking that if they can defy the government in various ways in the commons, that their preferred other outcome will come to pass. It's such a high stakes gamble for both. You know, the Remainers might do this and then end up with no deal. And the ultra-Brexiters might end up with a second referendum, which they don't want. So it seems to me that everybody's lost their head, actually.
1: Well, James, I think if we just look at those two battles that we had. So on the Eurosceptic side, yeah, obviously, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the European Research Group, who are pure Brexit believers, they went to Downing Street on Monday and essentially said if you don't accept these amendments, then we'll defeat the government. So the government ended up accepting them. There's a lot of debate in Westminster where they mean anything. People in Downing Street have said to me, well, actually, they don't really mean anything that we can change and the Chequers' plan still stands. Whereas on the other side, the Breakers have been briefing out that actually this means that the facilitated customs arrangement in the Chequers' plan, this is Mrs May's convoluted plan for customs, is now dead because of those amendments. What's your sense on that?
2: My sense is that they don't change things As much as people think, I think a lot of the things that were set out in those amendments, this is the argument Mrs May says, and I think it probably carries, are broadly in the Chequers white paper. I think Miranda has put a finger in her answer on on the key question, which, especially as far as the Eurosceptics are concerned, which is, what are they going to do on the big vote, the approval motion on the Chequers deal, when it comes to the Commons, October, November? At the moment, all their language, all their rhetoric is to say, we don't want checkers. we're going to vote against it. But as Miranda has said, if that is what they do, they will bring down the checkers compromise, no agreement on a deal, and the Commons will then enter into a no-man's land. My own view is the House of Commons is not going to allow no deal to continue. As the reality of no deal becomes clearer, and it will become clearer in the next few months, there is not going to be a majority for that. The default position is going to be to move towards Justine Greening's proposal or something like it for a second referendum. And what Jacob Rees-Mogg and the ERG, the European Research Group, the 60 to 80 hardline MPs have to ask themselves is, do we want to risk going down that road? Or can we, as Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, says, just accept checkers. It's not going to be hardwired into the Article 50 agreement. There'll be plenty of time in the implementation period to work out what kind of trade deal they want. Now, That looks to me, if I was in the ERG's position, as being an attractive road to go down. So the question I ask is whether there is a lot of bluster Mm. at the moment coming from the right or whether they will default to a
1: more accommodating position. And just briefly, there was another vote that the government actually did lose this week. And this was on the European Medicine Agency, which is something Dr. Philip Lee, who we remembered was the first minister to walk out the door, Over Brexit before this turmoil began. And essentially, it says the government is mandated to stay in the EMA. For the future. What does that mean and how significant is it? Again,
2: I, I think there's a lot of theatre in these amendments, but there's less substance. The Chequers White Paper is pretty clear. The government wishes to stay in the single market for goods. And as a result, it wishes to stay in the regulatory agencies linked to that. Britain would want to stay. If it could get this deal from Europe, it would want to stay in the EMA. So that was always going to get a majority. There was the four Eurosceptic Labour MPs backed that particular amendment. So again, An interesting moment which got everybody very excited because they thought Mrs May was going to lose the big one a few minutes later, but in fact, I don't think
1: its significance is that great. Miranda, let's just talk briefly about the Remainer strategy on all this. So following all that on Monday... Tuesday, we then had Stephen Hamm and Nicky Morgan come in with their amendment, which essentially said, if your customs arrangement doesn't come to pass by January, then we have to stay in the customs union. And to the hardliners, the ERG that we just talked about, that was obviously totally unacceptable. And I think the Conservative whips, did the mother of all whipping operations, with talk of the age-old pairing system falling down in Parliament. But they got it through, just about. And if they hadn't got it through, the whips, understand, were telling MPs, we're going to have a no confidence vote. If you're going to do this, then we'll have a no confidence vote. The government could fall, Mrs May could fall, we could spill into a general election. All manner of things were promised. But once again, they just about got through. But it just shows, as you were saying earlier, how tense and fraught this whole thing has become.
0: It has. And I like James's idea of it as parliamentary theatre, partly. And if it is that, and if it's an attempt by both sides of the Brexit argument to have a little show of strength as they try and kind of nudge the compromise this way and that. I think the Remainers came off the worst of it this week, for sure. It wasn't great. And this was partly because this attempt to coordinate across party lines seemed to go extremely badly. There were a lot of complaints about all the Whip's offices this week. The Tory Whip's office seemed to have been extremely naughty, undermining the honourable concept of pairing. So if you don't turn up to vote, Another MP who would have voted the opposite way also doesn't turn up to votes you cancel each other at. They not only abandoned it, they told people they would stick to those arrangements and then in a rather underhand way didn't seem to do it. But the Labour Whip's office also took a long time to make up their mind about what they were going to do on the ERG amendments. It was quite late in the day that they decided that they would support the customs union amendment from the Tory remainers. And it made it very difficult to kind of muster that show of strength from the Remain side. And they failed. And for the government to only win on such a crucial, crucial measure by six votes, again shows us that the Labour leavers, who you can also describe as people in the Labour Party who think that they have to respect the referendum result, are very crucial to May getting any sort of deal through, because it's true that there's no Commons majority for any particular outcome. So each thing becomes an exercise in brinkmanship.
1: And finally, James, obviously the question of where Mrs May's standing is in all of this was raised again. There was talk of letters going in, letters going out of force of no confidence votes, and of course it is all about how close we to that crucial 48. When there's 48 letters of no confidence in Mrs May, it triggers a vote. And I think... The Conservative Party is totally divided on what to do on this. There are some people like Philip Davies, the MP for Shipley, a libertarian MP who said very dramatically on Thursday, I'm putting my letter in, I no longer have confidence in Mrs May. Then you had others, for example, Simon Clark, who's the MP for Middlesbrough South, who said, I'm withdrawing my letter and did that again in a very dramatic way as these MPs like to. The problem they've got is if they trigger a leadership contest now, do they have the numbers to win that, which is about 160 MPs If they don't have the numbers to win that, then Mrs May is safe for another year. So it looks to me, if she gets through this week, the rest of this week and next week to the summer, she's probably safe until later in the year. And that's when your point about the motion on whatever deal comes back really comes into play.
2: I think your analysis is absolutely correct. I I do not think there's going to be a leadership challenge of any kind against Mrs May. It's far, far too late for that. The time for that was a year ago. That's all over now. The big game in the next few months is going to be what happens to the Chequers prospectus, the kind of middle Brexit that she set out. She now has to take it to the European Union. This is the next big phase. European Union don't like it. They think it's dividing up the single market. The UK wants to stay in the single market for goods, but not services. There's a lot of unhappiness. We haven't mentioned what is the other really big issue. What is going to happen on this so-called backstop or insurance policy to maintain an invisible border in Northern Ireland? The UK government is going to have to accept the idea that the insurance policy will be Northern Ireland staying in a customs arrangement with the EU. That has not been properly tested yet within the Conservative Party and the Democratic Unionist Party. So lots of problems there. But I come back to the basic point, which is when it comes to the big vote what do the hardline Conservatives want to do? Do they want to go into no-man's land, a potentially second referendum, or will they accept the Gove argument? OK, let's get across the line and sort everything out later. I think they will go for the second.
0: Yeah, I think this is absolutely right. This is the crucial question. And, you know, Gove is being described by some Conservative commentators as the Michael Collins of this affair, i.e. the person who unpopularly signed a peace deal with the British after the Easter Rising. To retain some sort of relationship with the British until Ireland could fully become an independent republic. And, you know, Gove, as that figure, makes a lot of sense. But otherwise, you're quite right, Sebastian, the goat is going into some sort of precipice. But whether it's a hardline Brexit precipice or a second referendum precipice, who knows?
1: It was also quite a difficult week on the opposition benches. The Labour Party, as we've just heard, was ultimately responsible for Mrs May winning the Brexit vote plan. Four long-term socialist Eurosceptics voted with the Tories to save her bacon. But that was all somewhat overshadowed by recent travails with anti-Semitism. In the latest instalment of this very long-running saga, the party did not adopt the international mainstream definition of anti-Semitism to its constitution, leading to another bout of anger and outrage against Jeremy Corbyn. Miranda, let's just pick up with what you said earlier about these four Eurosceptics. These are the kind of people in Labour who have not believed in the EU for decades. Jeremy Corbyn was one of them, as was John McDonnell. They see the EU as a sort of capitalist club. It's representing big corporations, infringing workers' rights, all the things they really don't like. So they voted with the government to give the cleanest break possible with the EU, to, I think, what you could say, a lot of anger from some MPs, from Labour activists, from trade unionists, and from people who want the softest Brexit possible or no Brexit.
0: It's very, very difficult for the Labour Party on this. And actually, there's an interesting mix of people siding with the government on promoting Brexit, as it were, through the Commons. And it actually includes sections of the old-style right of the Labour Party – I mean, one of the most outspoken people insisting that Labour will really come across her politically unless it, inverted commas, respects the result of the referendum is Caroline Flint. You know, she's no hard left figure. So there's an interesting, peculiar alliance of people in the Labour Party. And they are sticking to their guns. You know, they're not being won over at all by the compromises. Then on the other side, you've got quite interesting things happening. You've got some of the huge trade unions who bankroll the Labour Party, putting pressure on the leadership for a sort of soft Brexit. You've got momentum activists trying to gather signatures for a petition which would force momentum to vote on a proposal that Labour should be asked to back the idea of a second referendum. And that's actually gaining quite a lot of ground. They only have to get 10% of Momentum's membership on board for that to become a hard and fast demand. So there's a lot of toing and fro within Labour circles. But in the meantime, in a sense, to quote Mrs May, nothing has changed, which is that the Labour leadership don't really care about Brexit that much. And when Jeremy Corbyn's public line is we have to have a plan to bring people together for the post-Brexit Britain we want to see. You can see what their priorities are. They want to take over once Brexit's been done so that it's an albatross round the neck of the Conservative Party. And if we're out of the EU, why would they care? They've never liked it in the first place for the reasons you describe.
1: So, Robert, the sort of big question here is that, you know, there's so many ways Labour could really kick the government if they decided they don't really care that much about Brexit, but they'd like to cause the Tory maximum damage. Then my view would be they say, well, we'll stay in the customs union and the single market as well. But they've never done that for that point, partly for the reasons of, as Miranda was saying, some of the old Labour right who are very concerned about free movement of people and their constituencies. Partly because the Corbyn programme is to upend the economy and they see the EU as potentially limiting what they can do there. And part of that, I do wonder, is a bit of ineptness if they really have a clear plan or strategy of what they're doing throughout this.
3: I mean, there's an old adage about it's always a mistake to interrupt your opponent when they're tearing themselves apart. Yeah, And there's a lot of criticism of Jeremy Corbyn's tactics over Brexit because he's not speaking up for... Leave or soft Brexit. And you're right, if he championed, for example, staying in the single market, made it a whipped issue, there'd be a handful, as Miranda said, a handful of rebels, but most Labour MPs would support it. He could probably do terrible damage to the Conservative Party. If the Conservative Party drove through a soft Brexit with Labour support, there's 50 or so people who could split off. He could do terrible damage. But actually, the Conservative Party is doing plenty of damage to itself. And he's not getting in the way. And so although it's frustrating for people who want a second referendum or who want to overturn this vote, I don't actually think he's getting his tactics badly wrong at this stage. There may come a moment at the very end of this process where the Labour Party is going to have to ride to the rescue of some kind of Brexit that isn't calamitous. But it's not particularly in its interests at the moment to do so now. It may be in the country's interest But in the Labour Party's interest, I think Jeremy Corbyn is not playing this badly at all.
1: Well, one of the things that a lot of Labour activists were saying on Twitter is that these four MPs need to be disciplined or kicked out of the Labour Party or what have you for voting with the government. But the fact is that's not going to happen because, number one, Jeremy Corbyn in his deepest hearts of hearts probably agrees with them. And number two, because the party is sort of having this floppy policy that's not very hard to pin down, they can't really punish them when people vote the other way too. Well, there's all those things. And the
3: fact that Jeremy Corbyn and his closest aides are serial rebels themselves, defying the Labour leadership for decades on almost any policy they felt like defying it on. So I don't think it's really feasible to turn on these people as a group. On the other hand, if you're Kate Hoey in Vauxhall, you know, your local party might decide to turn on you. But these are pretty tough cookies, these people. These are not people who are going to be intimidated. Frank Field, Kate Hoey, these are not the kind of people who will fall over in a
1: mild wind. Now, the other big thing, Miranda, this week was Labour's issues with anti Semitism, which have dogged Jeremy Corbyn's leadership ever since he went to the top of Labour in 2015. And essentially, the accusation is that when Mr Corbyn became Labour leader, a lot of fringe figures and very left wing activists joined the party and started actively promoting views that most people had thought and assumed had been pulled out of mainstream politics and this all came to a head with the Chakrabarti review which looked into this many people feel was not quite up to the scratch of what was required and this general sense the party's been too slow to deal with this and to root out the bad eggs and that had another hit this week when the party was meant to adopt a tough new definition of anti-semitism which to be judged by and it didn't quite meet the mark in some people's
0: eyes. That's right so I think tolerance of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party has become one of the most depressing facets of a quite depressing (laughs) British political scene in the last three or so years. And for me, I find it quite hard to understand how racism against a particular group cannot be recognised as racism and therefore an assertive line taken against it. But it reached such an appalling pitch this week that Margaret Hodge, who is a unbelievably sort of long-serving, very experienced Labour politician who is herself Jewish and who herself saw off the BNP, a racist party, In her own East London constituency was having to confront the Labour leadership to say this is absolutely inadequate and you have proved yourselves incapable of understanding that anti-Semitism is racism. And we now understand that Hodge is going to be disciplined rather than them actually take on board what it is they've done. I'm relatively speechless actually about this situation.
3: This crossed a line this week. What's different about what's happened this week with Labour is that previously you could say that its failings on anti-Semitism were sins of omission, that it had failed to act on things. It had been too tolerant. What's happened this week is it voted on a definition of anti-Semitism that would be held by the Labour Party. There is an internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Association, and it's accepted by almost everybody, accepted across the world, across political parties what the Labour Party decided to do is not accept this definition, but amend it. So this has now become a sin of commission. They have said, we will not accept the world definition of anti-Semitism. We're going to change it to our definition... And their definition takes out some of the definitions of anti-Semitism, like, for example, saying that Jews have a dual loyalty and they might put the needs of Israel or international Jewish needs above national needs. That's no longer considered to be anti-Semitic. In other words, saying there's a Jewish conspiracy is no longer considered anti-Semitic by the Labour Party definition. So they have made Jews the only group in society that I can think of, any minority group whose definition of prejudice against them is ignored. So in other words, if you're Jewish and you say that's anti-Semitic, that is considered less valid than Jeremy Corbyn's view of whether it's anti-Semitic. It's a staggering position, which culminated this week in a letter from 68 rabbis. 68 rabbis agreed. Now, 68 rabbis don't agree on anything. (laughs) These rabbis do not even agree if all of them are rabbis, where they come from such a different part of the community. To get 68 rabbis to agree on anything is quite extraordinary. Some of the groups that have signed this letter are very hostile to Israel, for example, but they all agree that it is an outrage for the Labour Party to say the international definition of anti-Semitism is not acceptable, and the only possible Reason for amending it is to say we want to make exemptions where anti Semitism is okay. That's the only possible reason for doing it. And that's what
1: the Labour Party's done. And that's why it's in a mess. This has obviously gone down very badly with a lot of Labour MPs as well, that where Streeting the MP Philford North has said this is just absolutely disgusting. The chief rabbi from the UK again said this puts Labour Party on the wrong side of history. And then there was this outburst from Margaret Hodge, who was a veteran Labour MP who's very well respected in the party. She was leader of Islington Council in the 80s and so knows Jeremy Corbyn for many years. She fought off the BMP in East London, which a lot of people thought was an incredible feat in the noughties. And she essentially she stood up at the meeting of the Labour Party this week and used some language we can't use on this podcast, but said that Jeremy Corbyn was a racist and anti Semite. She denies, she denies using the language we can't use. It was put to her
3: that she had sworn at him and said, You're a blank. Anti-Semitic, racist, and when it was put to her that she said that she said no,
1: no, I didn't swear. So but she, she still, did
3: accuse him of being an anti-Semitic so she racist. Did,
1: she did say those things, and Mr. Corbyn just meekly responded, "I'm sorry, you feel that way, but again, it raises this question of just the split and divide about where Labour's moral centre is now, because obviously Jeremy Corbyn and those around him who were behind this new definition and not going with the IRHA's definition are very different to what was the mainstream in the Labour Party. So the
0: awful thing about this is the only way it makes sense is if 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 you see it through this kind of hard left perspective and a worldview, which is essentially anti-Western, which also means anti-Israel because of the West's support for Israel, doesn't really want to think about why the state of Israel exists in the first place, therefore has a very dodgy relationship with 20th century history and its verities. And you're really into very, very murky waters there. And it fits with a kind of anti-capitalist, anti-Western worldview, which is long held on the left. And I'm afraid I think this is why they tolerate it, because it's relatively common in that area of politics. And previously, that was a fringe activity, and those were fringe beliefs, and they have now crept into the mainstream.
3: There's no point in saying this is anything other than official Labour policy now. These people are in control of the Labour Party. The question that haunts the Labour Party is... What is breaking point? At what point do people have to to split? Do they go? And up until now, Labour Party's Corbynite leadership have been quite clever about not getting to breaking point. We saw one MP leaving this week, but over very specific circumstances. The Margaret Hodge thing is interesting. If she is disciplined heavily, that's the kind of thing that leads to breaking point. The Jewish vote in Britain is very, very small and actually only concentrated in a few constituencies. Of itself, it's a survivable risk. The issue for the Labour Party is if this forces certain MPs over the line to say we can't support this anymore and the split starts. The Labour Party's in a position against a government that is totally on the rack. It should be romping away here. This is very potentially damaging for the Labour Party as it moves forward and I think they've been a bit shocked by the reaction. I think they'll try and finesse this but the problem is as I said earlier this is something
1: they actively chose to do whereas all the previous errors have been things they failed to do. Well, we'll watch over the summer and see what happens to Miss Hodge and how the other MPs respond. But I think based on everything we've seen now, then it just seems to be they just stay and they just go along with it because they don't really see any other way. But that may all change on the other side of Brexit. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to James, Miranda and Robert for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. In the meantime, if you like the idea of some FT content and think about subscribing, you can find our latest offers at ft.com forward slash offer50. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Molly Mintz and Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening.